turn with me uh, to the book of Ephesians, and let's go to chapter 5. Paul is speaking about this way of life, this walk in our life, our manner of living, how we conduct ourselves as Christians. We're to walk in the light. We're to walk in, in God's love. And so Paul comes to this place of the marriage and how important it is to walk in the marriage in holiness. And he describes that by saying your marriage needs to have agape love. The responsibility that falls upon the men this morning. Because of creation, God has placed the man first. It's not that we're superior over the women. Because God made the man and the woman in his likeness. But God has an order also. And so the beauty that we're going to see here in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, it's an exhortation this morning. Love your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the Bible says that Christ died for the church. How much more we as the husband, as the prophet, priest, king of the home, are to die to self in that marriage. And so Paul brings it forth. Now it's interesting that Paul, you're going to see it this morning in one of the verses, he's drawing from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We understand creation. God created and we know that he brought forth the animal life. He brought forth the plant life. And then he created man. He made Adam. And he says, Adam, all of this is yours. Take dominion over it, Adam. In fact, God says, name all of the animals. But then God saw that there was an emptiness. It was all in the plant. And then Adam was alone. He needed a helpmeet fit for him. He needed a helper. And God created the woman, he named her Eve, and he brought her to the man, which is Adam. And then Adam said there back in Genesis chapter 2, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And can you imagine this morning, men, how Adam cherished that bride? We're told in the book of Proverbs that the bride that God gives us, the woman that God gives us as a wife, she is the bride of my youth. She is the bride of your youth. And so imagine Adam when he saw the woman. And this was God's gift to him. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then Adam goes on and he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We're going to share that later on in the text. The two become one. And when we take two pieces of wood and we actually glue them together, especially with the adhesives that we have today, you put that two pieces of wood together and you cannot break them. Now, I can give you a chisel, I can give you a hammer, and you will break through those two pieces. But they shatter, they splinter, and it looks ugly. That's a divorce. Because God... In Scripture says, I hate divorce. You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, they were so quick in the New Testament. And when they questioned Jesus on marriage, they said, but Moses gave a writing of divorcement. And Jesus responded, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote the law. And there was an opportunity for divorce. But listen to this verse. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, 
he hates divorce. And so what about Moses? And so Moses writes the law, and Jesus says he wrote it because of the hardness of man's heart. But in the beginning, it was not so. And so the husband and wife become one in the marriage. When we come to Christ, we become one in Christianity. And so how can we, uh, as we call ourselves Christians, how can we divorce? We call ourselves Christians, how can I separate myself from God? And yet the opportunities are there. You see, we have a free will to choose. God will allow you to make those separations. We see so many that have come to Christ and then they go back to uh, Egypt, part of the world, or they go back to Babylon because of the temptations that are there. And so we see a marriage and it's, it's intact for four or five, six years, and then all of a sudden the enemy gets in. Well, I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. She's not the same. He's not the same. Well, none of you are the same. And after 38 years of marriage with my wife, I can tell you, it's not going to be the same. Once you get married, it's just you're going to grow in your marriage. That's about it. Like it or not, the older we get, the more we just fall apart. But the marriage is intact. And so Paul is speaking about a precious gift. When you go to Genesis chapter 2, it's called the institution of marriage. It's called the covenant of marriage. We've done enough marriages here in this ministry in the number of years we've been here. And quickly, the couple goes over here uh, to the county assessor's office, and they get a certificate. That's good. But bottom line, that's just a piece of paper. And in all reality, you get a good lawyer, she gets a good lawyer, and then that piece of paper is just tore up. But if we look at Genesis chapter 2, as a husband and wife in Christ, there is no divorce. And it's not a certificate. It's not an agreement. It's a covenant between you and God till death do us part. Well, why are you getting divorced? Irreconcilable, you know, situation. I don't like her. She don't like me. Really? But yet you said, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Have one of you died? No. And why are you getting a divorce? We don't get along. Really? Where does that say in Scripture? You have to work at your marriage. It's not easy. You have to work at Anybody that has a perfect marriage, raise your hand so we can all turn around and look at you and say, you're, that's not true. <laughs> because we all fail. But we have to work at it. And it's Christ working in and through us. And so let's get back into this now. We're going to kind of go through it real quick. And then we'll pick it up in verse 27. But it begins here in verse 21 and verse 22. These are very important verses. Because most husbands love verse 22. But they neglect verse 21. It goes together. And so you're going to see how Paul compares marriage and Christ and the church. But he says here in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another, first of all, in the fear of God. Husbands, you cannot ask your wife in verse 22, listen to the preacher, be submissive to me, unless verse 21 is intact. So here's the way verse 21 works. You're in submission to Christ. 
And then now you're in submission one to another, the husband to the wife, the wife to the husband. The word submission is two Greek words. It's hupotasso, and it means to be ranked under or to be in submission under, in agreement under, listen, in obedience. In obedience. And husband, let me share this with you this morning. Your wife, your wife is going to be submissive to you in obedience when you are in submission and obedience to Christ. It just works that way. The more the wife sees holiness and righteousness and sees God working in and through you, husband, then the wife's going to melt in your hands. She's going to be there for you. I will serve the husband, she says, because he's a godly man, because he's Christ's likeness. But if the husband's a jerk, why should you serve him? Next time he wants soup, pour it on his head. Because where is the true love of Christ? Okay, so verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that's intact now. Then we can go into verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Because verse 21 is in operation, because verse 21 is complete, verse 22 can be accomplished in and through Christ. And again, listen, it's by choice. I don't walk around the house telling my wife, submit, submit, submit. You can't. But it comes automatically because she sees the life of Christ in you. It's important that we see this, guys. And young people, when you get ready to get married, make sure that that husband, that wife-to-be is godly. Or else you're going to start off in the wrong foot. Then he goes to the next verse, because verses 21 and 22 are intact now. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, we shared this last week, and I'll share it again. Man is not superior to women. God created man and woman and his image. But in creation, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God placed man first. So Paul here, through the Holy Spirit, uses the relationship to God and his church with marriage given to man. And it's done with love. It's done with agape love. Ladies, it's built in you to be in submission in Christ, through Christ, to your spouse. To your spouse. And ladies, if you're the type of woman that runs the household, you're wrong if you're a Christian. The husband is the prophet, priest, and king of the home. Let him make the decisions. Oh, you're there with him. I don't make all the decisions in my household. We sit down, we talk, we pray. But the husband is the head of the house. And again, a lot of ladies have problems with that. And, and you know, I'm in agreement. If I was in your shoes, I'd say, I'm not going to submit to him. But we're talking about a godly marriage. We're talking about a Christ-based marriage. We're talking about where both parties, chapter 5 here, verse 21 and 22, they're both in submission to Christ, both in submission to each other. The marriage will work. The marriage will work, I can guarantee you. But the husband has been placed in creation. Husbands, we have a tremendous responsibility. 
as the prophet, priest, king of the home. Interesting that we choose salvation. Nobody forces you into it. We choose marriage. Nobody forces you into it. Wife, you choose to be submissive. Nobody can force you to be submissive. But it's done in love. It's done in agape love. Look at verse 24. He goes on. Therefore, just as Christ is subject, uh, just as the church, excuse me, is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. And we dealt with this last week in everything. In everything. Now, be careful because the husband could come in and say, okay, you got to be submissive in this, this, and this. No, everything in Christ. Number one, is it scriptural what he's asking you to do? Number two, is it legal? In the eyes of the law, we shared it last week. We were being flippant. The husband comes home. Honey, you have to be in submission to me. We're going down to the local Pickwick. We're going to take two bandanas, and we're going to hold it up. Now, you be in submission to me. Here, you carry the gun. No, you tell him no. That's ludicrous. We use it as an example. And so the wife is to be in submission to her husband in everything in Christ. Not everything outside of Christ. And so it's important that we see this. Jesus is the head of the church. God has placed man as the head of the marriage. Notice in everything, again, in everything in Christ and in his law. But Jesus must be first. Verse 25, and we really dealt with this. Husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. Now we say, I do. We say, I love you. We're on the phone, honey. I love you. Those are all great. But is it coming from the depths of your heart? Until death do us part. In sickness and in health. In riches or poor. There's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they leave, the, they leave the marriage. If a child is born deformed, they can't handle it. Or if all of a sudden somebody in, in the marriage gets very sick, they can't handle it. The Bible says, till death do us part. In our marriage ceremony, we say, until death do us part or Christ comes for his church. And that's the key. Notice that it says again, husband, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it. We know that Jesus died for the church. Husbands, do we die for our bride? Do we die for our bride? Now, I gave this concept before. If you're called to the mission field, and we have third world countries right now, uh, especially like India, places like the Sudan, places in Africa that are very dangerous, in Asia, very dangerous, especially in some of these hard line Muslim countries. To be a Christian there is almost death. And so in the mission field, the missionary understands. Because we see the freedom in the United States of America. But bottom line, every day, missionaries die. And so the missionary says, hey, I'll die for Jesus. And in all reality, you would say, well, you know, if a gunman comes into the church and starts bl blasting away, I'll die for Jesus. Well, I venture to say that we could easily die for Jesus. But here's the catch. Can we live for Christ? Can 
Can we live for Christ? Honey, I will stand in the way. We give that example. We're over here in El Paseo. A truck's coming, and we're walking on the sidewalk. And the truck loses control, jumps the curb, and we see the vehicle coming straight at us. Husbands, you're going to push your wife. You're admirable. Great. Praise God. That's your job. That's your call. That's your ministry. And you die and go home to be with the Lord. But my question is, and I'm asking myself, can I live for Christ? Can I live for Christ on a daily basis? That's the hard part. Every day to die to self. And we mentioned last week, I don't like washing dishes. I don't like washing clothes. I don't like, you know, vacuuming. And so, do we die for self? Honey, let me do it. Oh, pastor, you're going to get me in trouble. I'm getting myself in trouble. Die to self. The husband, listen. Love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it. One commentary said this about verse 25. Christians, Christ demonstrated his love for the church in a powerful way. In a powerful way. He shed his blood at Calvary uh, 2,000 years ago. Then the more a husband shows his love for his wife and seeks to make her secure in his love, the easier it becomes to submit uh, in true love to her own husband in the Lord. In the Lord. This is agape. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So I come to saving grace now. I've accepted the death of Christ on the cross. I've been washed in his precious blood. I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. I come to marriage now. Have I died to Christ in that marriage? Have I died uh, for that bride in that marriage? If you're taking notes, husbands, I want you to study this tonight. I'm going to break it down for you right now. I was looking in the scriptures and I said, Lord, show me somebody that's really died to self in a marriage. Back in Genesis chapter 29, the beautiful story of Jacob and Rachel. Jacob sees Rachel. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Man, his heart's pumping. That's it. She's the one, right? And Rachel, she loves Jacob. Well, Jacob has to go to Laban. Her dad. I'd like to marry Rachel. Laban was shrewd, businessman. He says, You can marry my daughter, but you have to work for me for seven years. Guys, listen to this. Jacob says, Not a problem. I love Rachel. I will work seven years. Well, you know the story that finally the marriage comes to pass that night. Jacob didn't know, I'm assuming a little bit too much wine. He goes into Leah. He wakes up in the morning and he says, you're not Rachel. The law said, this is your bride. Laban knew exactly what he was doing. You see, according to the culture, according to the law at the time, uh, the eldest daughter had to get married first. And Leah was in line. And so he gets Leah as his wife. And then he says, but I want Rachel. And he says, you have to work for me. Listen to this, guys. He already put in seven years. You have to work for me another seven years. Fourteen years. I says, Lord, I thank you. My father-in-law never said that to me. 
Mary and I dated for six weeks, and we got married. That's 38 years ago, church. 38 years ago. But imagine your husband-to-be, not only seven years does he work for your dad, but 14 years. But he loved Rachel. Talk about dying to self. And you know what? One of my commentaries, I never forgot it. I believe, he said, I believe that those 14 years, they went by real quick for Jacob. And I said, what do you mean? 14 years? 14 years. Because of his love for his bride. He loved her so much, I will wait for you for 14 years. Man, I'll tell you what. That's love. That's agapeo love. That's dying to self. Jacob was a man after a husband's heart, really. Oh, Jacob got into a lot of trouble. We know that. Now let's continue. Look at verse 26. And again, remember the correlation that he does with the the husband-wife relationship, the marriage, and then Christ and the church. He is our bridegroom. We are his bride. Then he says in verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Now we came to the conclusion here. We know that God has supplied the word of God for his church. And so we get into the word of God and God speaks to us. But husbands, here's the responsibility that we have as the prophet, priest, king of the home. We are to nurture our bride. We are to feed her. We are to teach her the oracles of God. You know this verse. We've studied it many times in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12. We're told that the word of God is alive. It's not a dead word. It's alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Not just a one-edged sword, but a two-edged sword. It cuts as it goes in and it cuts as it goes out. And you've been here many times, and I've been here enough times. Before I preach it, I have to live it. And so the Word of God cuts the heart. The Word of God cuts your heart. The Word of God challenges us. The Word of God pricks our heart, convicts our hearts, brings us to repentance. That's how we come to saving grace. And so we bring forth the Word of God to uh, our bride. As Christ brings forth His Word to His bride, uh, the church. I was thinking of the concept, and we shared it in the first service. Sometimes the word cuts. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that God chastens. He disciplines those that he loves. Sometimes God has to spank us. In 1 John, or the Gospel of John, excuse me, chapter 15, the vine and the branches, and he says that he purges away at that vine. Sometimes God has to clip us, purge us. And that's what the Word of God does to us. But I was thinking of the concept, I get a pain in my side. It doesn't go away. I take some medication I might have around the house. I call a few people. We inquire. Uh, The last thing we want to do is go to the doctor. And then finally the pain will, will just not subside. So I call the doctor, make the appointment. I go in and the doctor says, man, I don't like what I see here, but let me give you some pills. And let's look at this for a couple of weeks before we talk surgery. But then the day finally comes. We hate that word. You're going to have to go under the knife. 
You're going to have to have surgery. And all of a sudden, fear sets in. The fear of the knife. The fear of getting cut. The fear of anesthesia. What if I don't come out? The fear of recovery. And all these phobias begin to set in. But I'm hurting. And then after the surgery, we're waiting for the result that as I'm, you know, recovering, I'm in pain, but I know it's going to subside sooner or later. But I want the doctor to say 100%. We got all of the problems out. Ah, thank you, Lord. Every person that I've ever visited uh, after, you know, quadruple bypass, they're hurting, they're in pain. You ever seen them? They have this, you know, beautiful little red heart that they hug. Their chest has, you might as well gotten a sledgehammer and pounded on it and then they look gray and you swear they're going to die but all of a sudden one day two days three days and before you know it they're okay and then I go what do you remember about the surgery I remember it hurt but I thank God for it the same thing with the word of God. It hurts. It cuts. It's a two-edged sword. And sometimes we have to go through the fire. And the husband, the wife, is to nurture the bride. Is to wash his bride in the word of God. And now look at verse 27. Where we actually want to begin part two. That he might present her to himself. He's speaking about the church. A glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now again, let's bring it back to our remembrance. Jesus died for the church. Through his blood, the church is made righteous, holy. Husbands, one day we will present our bride, our household, our children to Christ, pure and righteous. We are the prophet, priest, king of the home. We have a responsibility, men, to present our family to God in holiness. You see, there's no righteousness in me. There's no righteousness in you. There's no holiness in me. There's no purity in me. There's no holiness, no purity in you. It's only through Christ. Because Jesus saved me. He makes me holy. He makes me righteous. You see, I was never righteous before salvation. I was wrong living for God. And now I come to righteousness. I come to salvation. I'm right living for God. And he gives me his instructions how to live my life, how to live your life. The prophet, priest in the, in the home, we have a responsibility, men. One day we will present our, our chaste bride. Your children, if they're still at the age of accountability, as a husband, as a dad, we'll see that next week, you will present your children to Christ. We have a tremendous responsibility. Again, ladies, by creation, the man has been placed in charge. If you're taking notes, I want you to study this tonight. In the book of Revelation in chapter 21, we see a beautiful picture. John is taken up into heaven. And he is shown the church, the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife. He sees the new Jerusalem. But he sees the church in all its glory, in all its purity, 
in all its righteousness, all because of Jesus. That's the beauty of it. Now, there's a picture in one of the Psalms. I want you to study it tonight. Psalm 45, we don't have time this morning to develop it. But Psalm 45 speaks of the glorious church in heaven. And you're going to see later on in the finish of the study this morning, it was a mystery. The Old Testament saints didn't understand the concept of the church, the body of Christ, and Christ being the husband. But it's no longer a mystery, but it's been declared to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, husbands... Listen to what Paul says. So husbands, look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I said, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Bob, what are you talking about? Listen to the great example that Paul is giving here. And bottom line, men, let me share this with you this morning. I hope, don't raise your hand, you might embarrass yourself. I hope you got up this morning and you took care of your hygiene. I mean, we bathe this body, hopefully. We put deodorant on this body, hopefully. We brush the pearly whites. I mean, some of us do shave and we put a little Old Spice. You guys, what's Old Spice? Well, what's Brill Cream? What's Ipana? Anybody know what Ipana is? We used to brush our teeth. Never mind. But we take care of this flesh body. And if you don't, you're going to be an offense to somebody. Especially your wife. You'll say, whoo, something's right, man. What's going on, bro? Take care of something, man. So listen to what he says. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, loves himself. And if I care about this flesh body, how much more my bride? How much more your bride? Man, you, some of you guys, because you got enough hair, you spend enough time in the mirror. Well, what about your bride? What about your bride? And this is the love that only Christ can give us. Now, listen to this. Husbands, the love we have for our bride is not just duty. But it should be as natural as you love and care for your own self daily. We love because Jesus loves us. I care for my bride because I care for myself. It's in my heart. It should be in your heart. We shared this verse last week. And I know some of you have been divorced. Sometimes in the church there's been divorce, you know, two or three times. Hurtful, painful. Again, the two pieces come apart, and it's never purdy. Splinters. That's what divorce does. But you've come to Christ now. And you're both Christian. You're both sold out for Christ. And you finally, God says, this is what I wanted for you from the beginning. And that verse comes out. Husbands, memorize this. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, it says that she is the bride. She is the wife of my youth. I've seen it work, you know, two or three divorces. Then they come to saving grace. The divorces shattered them, and that's what caused them to come to Christ. 
And praise God, they met a woman, they met a man that were equally involved with Christ. That's why, again, verse 21, submission one to another because you're in submission to Christ. A godly marriage, it's not easy. But a godly marriage is what God wants you to have. So look at verse 29 now. And again, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, reminds us of that love of our own bodies. Watch this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Oh, look what God does for us, church. No man in his right mind, one of my commentaries said, ever hated himself, however deformed or whatever his imperfections are. Uh, You don't hate yourself. It's a proven fact when somebody tries to commit suicide, they're scrambling, you know, for breath. They're scrambling for help. They're crying out for help. And praise God they didn't take their life. Because it's not built in you to do that. Life is precious. God has given you life. Why would you want to trade it in? And that's what the enemy does. He wants to take you out. You see, God nourishes his church. He cherishes his church. What about our responsibility? I mean, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, when Jesus talks to his disciples, uh, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me to drink? When I, was, I needed shelter, did you, you know, cover me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? Jesus, they respond to him. When were you any of these things? When you did it to the least of me, you did it unto me. So if we're to take care of the down and out, and God takes care of the down and out, what about our, our families? What about our spouses? What about, you know, the husband? Man, I can testify all these years. Oh, it's been hurts and pains. Sometimes finances aren't there. Sickness, disease, infirmity, death in the family, hardship after hardship. And yet God sustains this church. He nurtures us. He cherishes us. Again, when you go back to Job chapters 1 and 2, you see poor Job loses everything. And she says his wife, curse the God that you serve. And Job says, no way, man. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you finish Job. And everything comes back a hundredfold. Beautiful. One commentary said this about verse 29. Even as the Lord, the church, that is, as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church, which he furnishes with all things that he sees needful or good for her, with whatever conduces to her everlasting happiness and welfare. God cares for the church. And you know it if you've been a Christian long enough. How much more, husbands, are we to love our wife, to love that bride of our youth? Look at verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Simple statement, but listen listen to what Paul's doing here. 
He speaks about God. He assigns this as the reason why Christ nourishes and cherishes his church because all who belong to it, his church, are members of his body. And it says, and that is of his mystical body. The mystical body speaks of the church. We are members of, of his body. All the grace and the glory which the church has are from Christ. As Eve was taken out of man, uh, but as one observes, it being the manner of the sacred writings to express a complex body, uh, it says, by the many, many different parts of the body, look at the body of Christ. I mean, how many denominations do we have? How many non-denominations do we have? They're all the body of Christ. Beautiful. Now, if Jesus takes care of the body of Christ, it's so natural that the body, the flesh, the bones, we become one. <laughs> this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is what Adam said, and we're going to read that in just a minute. Now look at the call that he places in our hearts. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his, and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul takes it back to Genesis. Takes it back to the institution of marriage. The thought shifts back now. And fourth, between the marriage relationship and the relationship between Christ and the church. Here in verse 31, a free quotation from Genesis 2 verse 24. It sets forth the scripture base of marriage as a natural result of woman's creation. Listen, the marriage bond is stronger than that between parent and child, establishing such close intimacy as to be called the scripture oneness, unity, rather than union. I'm not taking away anything that you don't love your children. But one day that child will have a spouse. One day that child will create their own uh, family. And what is left is the husband and the wife that started that family. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we become one in the unity of the body of Christ. Not a union, but we become one. The two pieces of wood, remember? Again, it's easy to have a certificate. Well, I have a certificate that says I was married on, on such and such a day. Fine. But we know in all reality that certificate can be discarded. You get a lawyer, she gets a lawyer, and it's taken care of. And so we understand that position. And yet, a covenant... A covenant of marriage. Interesting to me that back in Genesis, in the beginning, God creates the man, then he creates the woman, and then he says, have dominion over all this. And then he says, hey, I'm going to institute marriage. We're not just going to have a man and a wife. We're going to have marriage. It's the first institution, the first covenant. Marriage is holy, we're told in the book of Hebrews. It's sanctified. It's set apart. Marriage is pure. I like that one translation of, of marriage is honorable. The word honorable 
that marriage is costly. So many times we just look at the marriage, but that marriage is costly. Oh, you might have spent so much money on your wedding, the wedding dress, the tuxedos, the music, the food, all that. That's all expenses. But I'm talking about the cost of the marriage. It was paid in full at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for that marriage. That's why it's holy. It's set apart. It's from God. Now look at verse 32. This is a great mystery. You've got to understand the church at Ephesus, not everybody understood what marriage was yet in relationship to Christ and his church. The Old Testament saints didn't understand marriage and the relationship with Christ, the Messiah, and his church. So he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, mystery to maybe some there in Ephesus not understanding yet. Mystery yet to so many Old Testament saints. But now in the New Testament, and especially today, 2,000 years later, the Holy Spirit has revealed the church and marriage are one. The church and marriage are one. The explanation of this meaning of marriage relationship and the church was seen in the Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon. You've never read that. It's a powerful book. I, I taught it years ago. It's a very intimate book. I mean, you get a lot of red face and a lot of sweating goes on because it's a very powerful book. It is a love book. But it was a picture of the marriage in the Old Testament. Solomon. The man with too many wives and too many concubines. He's the one that wrote it. Who gave it to him? The Holy Spirit. But now, marriage is divinely revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church and Christ divinely revealed to us. I see Jesus. He's the bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride. The Bible says one day the bridegroom will come for his bride. It's a picture. And so husbands this morning, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he died for her. Have we died for our bride? Do we love our bride as Christ loved the church? Yeah, this is a great mystery, but not no more. Not to us. It's been divinely revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, look at verse 33. We're going to conclude here, but we still have another verse that I want to share out of 1 Corinthians. And then Paul says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, let me give you some background here, church. Women in the time of the Greeks and in the time of the Jewish culture here, now listen to this, ladies, were just one step above slavery. The woman was considered nothing. And so now Paul's telling us here, he's telling the church at Ephesus, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. And again, we go back to verse 21. There must be that submission, number one to Christ, that submission one to another. And then verse 22, the wife is able to be in submission in Christ to her husband. 
And so then he says here in verse 33, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. In turn, respect, or better translation, reverence. How does this take place? Only through Christ. Only through Christ. In the marriage ceremony that we do at the church, there's a place, and I say to the girl, I says, do you promise to submit to your husband as unto the Lord? You, you can sense the non-believers in the audience. Did he say submit? What the heck is wrong with that preacher? I would never say it. I've heard that. And then the Christians, they're all in agreement because they understand the wife cannot be in submission unless he's in first submission to Christ. It's so automatic. Now, church, I wanted to come to this conclusion. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because we've been speaking about husbands love your wife. How do I do it? It's not easy. Husband, love your wife. And then I'm supposed to be like Christ-likeness? I'm supposed to be like Christ that represents the church. And, you know, and it's just so difficult. But only through Christ is it possible. Only through Christ. And because of the love of Christ. Now, we understand the Greek words for love. We have phileo. It's brotherly love. And then we have eros love. It's erotic love. And yet he speaks about, then there's a stergio, that's another love, and that speaks of love relationship for, you know, parents and such. But then he speaks of agapeo love. Agapeo love is divine love. Now, I find it intriguing that Paul, in speaking to the church at Corinth, he comes to the place of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. And too many times the church... The body of Christ is interested in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 because they speak of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then the church goes to Ephesians chapter 4, and there are gifted men and gifted women uh, as gifts to the church to teach us the body of Christ. And then in Romans chapter 12, we see a whole other slew of gifts of the Holy Spirit given to those that ask. But so many times we neglect, we say, have you read 1 Corinthians 12 and have you read 1 Corinthians uh, 14? But nobody says anything about 1 Corinthians 13. And you see, it's called the love chapter, agape chapter. In other words, the operation of the gifts that are given to the church must be an operation through this agape love. And so husbands, how are you going to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Only through agape, divine love, love that's always giving, always giving, never wanting anything in return. Uh, the best picture of, of agape is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Paul begins here, and I want you to pay attention. We're really going to pick it up in, in verse 4 through verse 8. But he begins to describe, okay, you tell me you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but I'm telling you, where's your love? And he begins in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. If you've been in Christianity long enough, the whole concept is if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to speak in tongues. Listen, I followed that avenue for about 10 years. 
And I searched high and low to speak in tongues in a foreign language, and it never came to me. Little did I realize how many other gifts that I have. Probably the greatest gift that God's given to me is the, the ability to teach. But where is love in the gifts? Where is love? So I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The best translation, I've just become a noisy gong. Just a lead bell. Sounds awful. And then he goes on to some more gifts that are very popular. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, and so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love. I'm nothing. Oh, brother, I have such faith. I could remove mountains. Do you have agape? Oh, brother, I have so much insight about the Word of God. I've really studied. Do you have agape? Oh, God's given me the gift of prophecy. I'm able to see into the future. I'm able to speak forth God's Word. Do you have agape? This is what Paul is saying. And then he goes on to verse 3. And, and though I bestow all my gifts to feed the poor, and, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it, it profits me nothing. Our United States of America is known for its giving. Third world countries, some of them hate us so much, but as soon as there's a disaster in their region, call the United States. Or is the United States sending over help? Because that's what we do, church. And we help and we help and we help. But where's agape? Are you just doing it because we have provision? We can so easily dispense, you know, FEMA, Red Cross, Salvation Army. The church is always there, but do we have agape love? I'm able to feed the poor. I even die. The, the miners that were stranded up here in Utah, they tried desperately to go get them. And then three miners, another cave-in, and they lost their lives. Did they know Christ? Did they have this agape love? You see, we can accomplish a lot of things, but do we have Christ's love? And so in verse 4 through verse 8, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation uh, just to uh, translate some of the King James, New King James. They're very tough words. And you're going to, I'm going to read through it. And the word love is rhetorical. It should be in there. In some of the places they didn't put it, I've inserted it. So if it sounds a little strange, but you'll see it, how it works. And so then Paul begins as he just exhorted in these first three verses. And then he says in verse 4, love. This is agape. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. True agape love, none of these things will take place. And that's why Paul's saying in our text this morning and last week, husbands, love your wife. Look at verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. And again, church, listen, husbands, love your wife. How? Because of agape love. 
And then he goes on. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. And Jesus, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. And again, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then I have righteousness only through Christ. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then look at verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Then look how he concludes it. Love never fails. He's talking about agape love. Now we read this in our marriage vows. Very important. And we, in our counseling session with the couples, we bring forth this position in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, the love chapter. Remember, agape love is always wanting to give and never, you know, you just give. You don't want anything in return. You're not looking for anything. You see, in the world, I do something for you. In the back of my head, I'm waiting. Okay, I'll remember you. I'll call on you one day. You owe me a favor one day. I'm giving you five bucks, but don't forget me one day. We always put a you know, stipulation to it. God says, hey, man. I love you. I love you. Now, for years, I've taught this passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I, I, I put it to a test. And here's the way to test it. Take the word love out of each phrase here and insert your name. Ooh, it doesn't work. Because I can read it in verse 4. Bob is patient. Oh, no, he's not. And you don't believe me? Ask my wife. Bob is kind. Not always. It says Bob is not jealous. Bob does not brag. Bob does, is not arrogant. And you look at it and you go, oh, I'm busted. That's true. But now, take the word love and your name out of the picture and place it with Jesus. Place it with Jesus. And let's go back up and read it. Jesus is patient. Oh, yes, he is. Look how long he waited for you. Look how long he waited for me. Jesus is kind. Thank you, Lord. Jesus is not jealous. Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus does not brag. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek its own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Jesus does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. And listen to this, church. Jesus will never fail. The gift of tongues will fail. The gift of prophecy will fail. The gift of teaching will fail. The gift of faith, the gift of giving. I mean, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are eventually going to subside. But Jesus will never fail. Never fail. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for the church. Give ourselves for our wives. I'll tell you what. You have to work at it. 
And young people, if you're not married, I'm going to exhort you in love. You wait for a godly man. You wait for a godly woman. Don't look at the outward side. Oh, 6'2", 175 pounds, graduate of the university. No, 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 no. You better look at the heart. You know that Israel got in trouble when they said, you want a king? Yes, who do you want? We want Saul. He's a, a foot over everybody. He's handsome. He's Mr. GQ of the Old Testament. Remember Saul? He got into a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. And remember the prophet came? And he was looking for the, the new king. And he says to Jesse, where's all your sons? Well, there's only one more left. He's a little runt. He's out there with a sheep. Show me him. And when he saw King David, he was just a kid. You know, running nose the whole nine yards. And the Lord said, that's the one told the prophet, that's the one. That's why Saul wanted to kill him. You see, God looks at the heart. He never looks at the outward man. We're too busy. Well, let's see if she looks like Hollywood or he looks like Hollywood. Does her heart look like God's heart? David was a, a man of sin, but he was a man after God's own heart. God's own heart. And men, praise God for the wife of your youth, the bride of your youth. Nurture her, cherish her, love her. One day you'll present her to Christ, a chaste bride. Oh, hallelujah.